0: Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. You can find Soul of a Nation on iTunes, Google Play, and on sojo.net. For more news, resources, and reflections about our current public health crisis, visit sojo.net slash coronavirus. Today I'm speaking with Pastor Eugene Cho about anti-Asian xenophobia and the pandemic's effect on Seattle, where he was a pastor. Eugene Cho is president-elect of the Christian Advocacy Organization on Poverty and Hunger, bread for the world, one of our key allies, and the former pastor and founder of Quest Church in Seattle, Washington, place where I was able to be a couple times. It's really quite a what a wonderful place to, to be. So welcome to the soul of a nation, Eugene. We're so excited to have you here today.
1: Jim, thank you again so much for having me. And uh, you brought up some great memories as we hosted you for your last book. And I think you and I had some coffee at Q Cafe some years ago as well.
0: We did. Now you're coming to Washington to have a little more coffee, I'm hoping. <laughs> yes, for sure. So let me start, Eugene, with this. Um, how's your spirit? I just spirit these days? Well, thanks for asking that question. Um, you know, to be honest,
1: it's uh, it's up and down. Uh, you and I, all of us, we're, we're human. We're made of flesh and bone. And so I know for myself, there's been bouts of some anxiety at times. I worry about my kids, my parents who live three miles away. My dad just got into a car accident hit by a drunk driver just last week. And this is on top of all just the uh, health-related issues. And so uh, this has been a reminder to me that God meets us not just in our good places and good spaces, but God meets us in our fear and our anxiety as well. It's not that God wants us to stay there forever, but I'm just really grateful that our relationship with the living God is personal and, and that we could bring our concerns and our, at times, our anxious spirits uh, to, to the Holy Spirit as well.
0: So God is with us in whatever we're in, even though that's often not controllable or predictable, and we're not sure how it's going to come out sometimes. That's right. So you live in Seattle, the city that became the first widespread outbreak of the coronavirus in the US. What is Seattle like right now as compared to the rest of the country or when you started this?
1: You know, the United States is such a big country. I mean, just physically, as you all know, it's such a huge country. And it was really just a disconnect knowing that in our city, when this whole pandemic began, it was the epicenter of COVID 19. Um, It was such an intense conversation. There was some fear and some hysteria uh, initially. And yet, when you were beginning to see images around the country of folks on beaches doing their normal thing, uh, it was uh, it was really jarring in, in many ways. Um, and as you shared in the beginning, I think we were one of the first major cities to go uh, and to uh, basically go and at a shelter in place. And um, I'm happy to report that because of what I believe, the governor doing a, a good job of leadership, um, the curve has been flattening. And now we're in phase one of a four-step phase to reopen uh, the state. Uh, But again, it's determined by lots of good leaders, good scientists, good data. Um, And I'm really proud of fellow pastors and religious leaders around the city and around the state that have been trying their best uh, to be about the common good and to seek the peace of the city.
0: Well, what role did the churches and faith leaders play those pastors in Seattle's handling of all of these uh, virus issues?
1: You know, as you know, the the Capital C Church is a very large umbrella. And so certainly there were folks that disagreed on how things were conducted. Uh, There are churches right now that are still upset that church gatherings haven't been able to gather. Um, So there's it's been all over the map. But I think on the most part, on the most part, the totality, the large part of the church, they've been very, very, I think, uh, cordial, respectful. Understanding that this is one of the ways that we can love and serve our neighbors and neighborhood during these challenging times. And then to also hear glimpses of the beauty of the church, the kingdom of God at work, as you see churches going out of their ways to love and to care and to be compassionate, to raise resources, to be able to distribute groceries. That's happening not just in Seattle, but all around the world. I know that the church at times, receive, they should receive criticism for the way that they handle themselves. But sometimes personally, I get frustrated that uh, what might often get captured in the media might be a small portion of the church that don't seem to be about the common good. And so on the most part, I'm just really proud as a fellow Christian pastor and leader to stand with other leaders here in this city and beyond, Doing what we can to be a blessing to our city and to the entire
0: state. You know, I agree with that. And there was a whole lot of media focus on a relative few churches that refused to to close down and were risking infecting their neighbors. But so many faith leaders that I've talked to, even heads of, of denominations and my local pastor here in Washington, there was our vocation was how to respect. The social distancing that health workers and doctors were calling us to, and yet to prevent the social isolation of our congregations and the vulnerable in our communities, I, I thought a whole lot of that was going on. Did you see some of that going on in Seattle too?
1: No, absolutely. Uh, I, I actually had a problem with the usage of social distancing—that phrase. You know, I, I don't. I believe in the concept. I know that it works. I just wish from the beginning we used a different terminology because we're not advocating for social distancing. We're advocating for physical distancing, but we have to remain socially connected. Uh, As you know, churches are like other businesses, other institutions, there are lots of challenges. And some churches weren't prepared to be able to go into that rapid pivot into virtual technology and what have you. So that's been also encouraging to see uh, for several reasons. One, it's been good to see leaders adapt and learn and be flexible. And then I've loved seeing other churches and other leaders saying, if we could help you to other churches, even other faith groups, if we can help you, please let us know. We're all in this together. To kind of see that spirit, because typically if we're being honest, sometimes there is a spirit of territorialism uh, that exists in all churches and all institutions. So to see churches break through that
0: and want to help, others has been
1: really encouraging to me. I
0: also prefer that term physical distancing, because we need to do that. But what we're doing around the country is, in fact, trying to prevent social isolation. And I think and some pastors tell me they think their congregations have become closer during this time. So that's, you know, that's a thing to yeah, say.
1: Yeah, it, it'll be fascinating, I think, for folks to look back at this time. And I, I actually do believe that When there are challenges, however these challenges come to us, uh, we could either buckle or we could really rise and rediscover kind of our core identity of who we are, who we serve, and what we're about. And I'm seeing more of the latter than the former.
0: Yeah, me too. So your name came up in the early few weeks of this when President Trump was calling the coronavirus uh, the Chinese virus. And you said this, you tweeted, Mr. President. This is not acceptable. Um, Calling it the Chinese virus only instigates blame, racism and hatred against Asians here and abroad. We need leadership that speaks clearly against racism, leadership that brings the nation and the world together. No further divides. You tweeted that and then it got some real attention.
1: Yeah, it did. You know, I really wrestled with uh, with that tweet. Um, as you know, I think sometimes when we're in leadership, we want to be cautious and careful. We want to balance the pastoral and the prophetic. And it just also happened to be that that was my first day on the job at Bread for the World as president-elect. I'm uh, right now just onboarding and, and learning from David Beckman and the staff there. And uh, so I was a little uh, hesitant, but I was so disturbed by that tweet. And it wasn't just that tweet. I want people to understand that in the context of real news, of real stories, not just of a handful, not just hundreds, but thousands of documented incidents of both verbal and physical abuse and assault here in this nation and around the world, against Asians and Asian Americans. And I felt like that was just gaslighting the situation and I needed to speak up. And you
0: saw some of that in Seattle.
1: You know, not only did I see that in Seattle, but I know that there was um, kind of a slur directed at one of my children. Uh, I've had a couple of our church folks that I know experience difficult things. Um, Again, it wasn't physical assault, but It just, there's no excuse for someone to come to your face and verbally abuse you. I've also had two incidents of family members, of cousins uh, and nephews and nieces who've also experienced this as well. And in recent weeks, there's been numerous documented cases. I mean, just really horrific incidents and images of elderly being abused. There was a story in Texas of a family, including two kids whose faces were slashed by knives. Uh, so this is not just a make-believe, nebulous, theoretical situation. It's happening, and I really felt like we need um, we need leadership, leadership in our churches, leadership in our companies and institutions, and certainly we need leadership from our government institution as well.
0: And your own story is an immigrant story.
1: That's right. Now, I I was born in Seoul, South Korea, immigrated to the United States when I was six years old, grew up in San Francisco. I grew up in a very diverse city. And so it's kind of the way that I see the world. But it's not just a politically correct thing. I think as followers of Jesus, we have a compelling and imaginative um, perspective of what the kingdom of God is about. And so for us as Christians, we especially need the church to rise up. Uh, And it's not just about racism that impacts people and faces that look like me. We're talking about any time and every time, uh, incidents take place that contradict the ethics of Jesus, the kingdom of God. It's my hope and passion. I know it is for you as well, Jim, that, that Christians and leaders that we, um, are, are bearing witness to who Jesus is and what the kingdom of God is all about.
0: I just had a podcast just last week with, uh, young pastor in Seoul, Korea, you probably know, Hanuk Kim, about how they responded to all of that going on in Korea, too. So so this is all very current around the world um, going on. What kind of response did you get from your, uh, I think, strong, clear uh, statement from faith leaders uh, about what you said? Did you get unexpected support from people you might not have thought? Uh, Did people underscore that as you were uh, standing up and speaking out in that kind of a way?
1: Uh, you know, it was a mixed bag, to be honest with you. Um, I think there were those, including church leaders, who were supportive and affirming, encouraging. Um, but there was obviously a huge um, kind of pushback. Um, there was an interview that I did with with the Washington Post the following day who saw that tweet. And they did an article, an interview with me. That article was cross-shared in numerous other publications around the world so after a while, I had to kind of turn off my Twitter, my social media. I had to turn off reading the comments because it was a little bit over the top. Um, in some ways, uh, there were many comments that were blatantly racist. So that was discouraging. Um, you know, whether it was when I was six years old or even now as I turned 50, you know, I think what, what sometimes breaks my heart is that as a proud, naturalized Korean American citizen, I know that this country is far from a perfect nation, but it's also my home. It's my country. It's the place that I want to pour out uh, my gifts, my imagination, my creativity, and certainly live out my faith. But whether it's six years old when I first immigrated or now, uh, I still get those comments about go back home. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think there is something about that statement that does break my heart where I wonder, will this place ever be home or will I ever be fully received as i'm doing air quotes right now as american if you will um so i had to turn off some of those comments because it was difficult and challenging Uh, but i think it's a reminder to me that there's a lot of work to be done and i want to be a part of that work of trying to create a more just a more compassionate a more equitable a more beautiful nation
0: well you're coming into a new role here at bread for the world in washington dc which will help you in fact do that and i'm sure uh uh, we're gonna you have more opportunities than ever to in fact act on what you just just now said but as a pastor let me let me stay there for a moment and go to how that prophetic role uh, is is unfolding for you you're a pastor and many friends of yours are pastors you have a you've had a ministry to pastors around the country and around the world uh what are the challenges pastors are facing right now in a time like this of let's say, collective grief and fear and lack of certainty in people's lives. Uh, how how What's that pastoral ministry that we need to have for people in, as they say, such a time as this?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, and it's a really complex question. There's so many different layers about what the challenges are, but every challenge, I think, is an opportunity for us to exhibit and demonstrate our leadership, our vulnerable, honest leadership. But there's, there's a few things that I would share. Number one, I think life is happening in the lives of pastors and leaders. It's not like there's a disconnect with leadership and just the reality of everyday life. And so in our family, I'm thinking about my kids and my young son, who's a junior in high school, who hasn't been able to really technically go back to school Uh, We're dealing with our parents. We're dealing with finances. For me, prior to coming on to Bread for the World, 80% of my income was just speaking. All of that was canceled. And so just dealing with life in itself. But I think in terms of leadership, uh, I think there are many different challenges. One of the fact is, um, as we're talking about going back to normal, I think we're realizing, do we want to go back to normal? What kind of normal do we want to go into? I think it's really forcing us to re-examine uh, the, the box mentality of the church as a production. Again, for some, because as you know, there's so many different expressions of the church. But I think it's really causing us to introspect about the way that we lead and the model of church ministries that we lead and ask, is this the healthiest way of doing church? There are certainly uh, real issues about sustainability. Finances are an issue. But I wanna go back a little bit to the last question related to the comment about Chinese virus. You know, there are some pastors who did push back and have said, especially with that comment along with the last book that I wrote, which just came out a month ago. uh, It's entitled, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, A Christian's Guide to Engaging Politics. And I've had some pastors push back and say, you know what, Eugene, you as a pastor, uh, there are some boundaries. You should not talk about politics as a pastor. And I've had to respectfully push back and disagree with some of my colleagues and friends and other pastors because what I've been sharing with them is while I know that there's tension and it's a challenge, especially in our climate, to talk about controversial things, if we're not shaping and forming and discipling our congregation as imperfectly as we might be as leaders, the reality is they are being discipled by someone else. And I would rather our pastors, our shepherds, our elders, our deacons, I would rather our thoughtful, prayerful Christian leaders disciple our congregation around the intersection of faith and politics rather than cable news or or political pundits and what have you. So it's an important time for us to live into this tension of embodying the pastoral and the prophetic and certainly the practical as well.
0: In fact, you have spoken to this question when some people see uh, evangelism, for example. You're from the evangelical tradition and family in the church. Some want to see evangelism as competing with justice. And you once said, the Great Commission is not a competitor to the Great Commandment. Unpack that.
1: Well, we probably don't have the time to do a big historical dive of the modern church, especially here in the West. But it wasn't always like that, as you probably know, Jim. It wasn't always like that. I think we had a much more holistic understanding of the gospel. Uh, and so now it's not necessarily my, my verbiage, but I've heard it used in multiple places. I love articulating the gospel as the whole gospel, Uh to declare with great conviction that Jesus saves, that he forgives sinners like me, like you, like others. It's a beautiful message that for me as an evangelical Christian, I don't ever want to be timid in sharing that good news. The danger is that if we reduce the gospel, the totality of the gospel to only that message, however beautiful that is that Jesus saves, It's not only an incomplete gospel, I actually think it's a false gospel because then we reduce it into my ticket, your ticket, our entrance into heaven. And as a result, there's this heavy emphasis on evangelism, on the Great Commission. Now, again, I want to make it very clear. I love the Great Commission. I love evangelism. But I just think it's dangerous when we reduce the gospel merely just to evangelism. And so Jesus says to love God, but also to love our neighbors. So the Great Commission and the Great Commandment are not competitors to each other, as some have seen. Um, Over the years, it really began to alarm me. At first, it was one or two people. But then over the last 10 years, I've had so many people ask me during sermons or at conferences or through personal correspondences. They've asked me this question, what's more important, evangelism or justice? And so somewhere in our theological construct, we've been, I think, falsely taught into thinking that these are competitors to each other when in fact they constitute the beauties of the gospel, the whole gospel, both matter
0: to Jesus. The way you put that in terms of discipling and discipleship brings to mind a story that I'm not sure many people heard me tell. I don't think you probably have either, but my last conversation with Bill Bright the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, and who often was in opposition to much of what we were saying about justice. And we went for a long walk before he, he died. And he said, you know, Jim, I've come to realize that the Great Commission, the Great Commission says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, teaching them, that's discipleship. That means it's all the stuff that you've been talking about in poverty and how we take care of people And I, you know, I'm kind of a great commission guy. He said, yeah, I know. He said, and I've realized that the the taking care of our brothers and sisters, those who are poor, especially, this is part of the great commission. This is what Jesus asked us to do. You know, and we we had a real reconciliation there at the end of his life because he realized this was a part of the great commission too.
1: Well, and you know what's beautiful? That's a beautiful story. Thanks for sharing that is that when you're speaking with, Christians or missionaries that are doing work as part of your traditional missions, I guess, framework, you ask them what they're doing. And the majority of the work that they're doing is embodying the gospel. It's feeding the poor. It's empowering indigenous leaders. It's pursuing justice on the streets. It's these kinds of things that bring so much credibility and power to the words that we share that Jesus is Lord.
0: Well, that's a good segue in the, your new role here at Bread for the World. Um, in fact, what you said before about how the, the COVID, COVID virus, the COVID is laying bare so much of what was already real, true, normal, as you say, and not a good normal for a lot of people. And so how do we take those learnings? And so to talk about xenophobia, which has been revealed, or that African-Americans, Hispanic are getting and dying from the disease three times more than white people, which is about not the, the the medical issue, but, but in fact, how people are more vulnerable, that racism and poverty are really uh, preconditions for this disease, how people are already having to live. And now you're going to bread for the world. And so I want to put this work around hunger and poverty in your discipleship context here. That's what is really, I think, about and Sojourners and Bread, as you know, are deep partners in all this. And David Beckman and I both see this as matters of faith and not politics as somebody was criticizing you of being focused on. So we're together this this week advocating for an increase in SNAP benefits, um, what people call food stamps, uh, nutrition for people. Uh, The food lines are all over the country and we all see them. And so we want SNAP, we want increased uh, food nutrition benefits, we want the inclusion of immigrant support and other protections for the vulnerable in these stimulus bills that are being debated just next week. What do you think it'll take for our policymakers to understand that including vital nutritionals, this isn't just good policy, but it's also, uh, you know, good faith and good morality?
1: Well, I think you explained a great synopsis on the tension, on the issues about SNAP, Uh, This is not a nebulous conversation about policies and about data. I mean, all we have to do is listen to the stories of our neighbors, of people in our respective churches. Uh, We can hear the stories of our fellow pastors. Uh, Just yesterday, a good friend of mine who's a pastor at a church in the Bronx, his name is Pastor Reverend Michael Carrion, and there was just a really brutal article about his reality pastoring a congregation in the Bronx, where as of yesterday, 15 of his congregants had passed away as a result of COVID-19. I just received a a, a text that that's only gone up by several people today. And so when I'm speaking with lawmakers and politicians, I'm not here to demonize them or vilify them. I know that they're trying. Um, They're working. My urge, my encouragement is let's do the right thing. Let's do the humane thing. Let's do the empathetic thing. Let's do the compassionate thing, especially in light of what is going on. All we need to do is simply open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts. And we know that real people are hurting and suffering all around the country and certainly all around the world. And so we need moral courage from our leaders. And we also need churches and Christians, people of faith to speak up that part of our discipleship is to advocate for those, not that people don't have a voice, but not everyone is heard. And as you and I know, Jim, part of, I think, advocacy work is that we know that in the halls of power, some voices are louder than others or some are more heard than others. And so organizations like Bread and Sojo, we're trying to collaborate with others to amplify the voices of every single person created in God's image uh, and particularly around something as basic and fundamental as hunger. If we can't rally around this notion and truth that no American, no person should go hungry in our nation or around the world. I just woe unto us if we can't come together around something as basic and dignified as that.
0: You know, that Matthew 25 text, that was my conversion text. And we, David Beckman and I talk about all the time. Uh, I call it the It Was Me text. Uh, I was hungry, and Jesus says. It was me. I was hungry. And you gave me food or didn't give me food. It was me. This is such, for evangelicals, I'm from that tradition too. And I, I just long to see more evangelicals being involved in this kind of advocacy.
1: Well, you know, I think that's part of the work that I feel called to do along with others. You've been in that journey and, 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 Calling for a long, long time, but you know I think the word politics for lots of reasons it's grown to become this difficult, challenging word in our culture and context, especially I think in the evangelical context uh, going back to that those comments that other pastors have shared with me, you know you shouldn't talk about politics at all, and I keep gently trying to encourage other leaders, the reason why we have to be about politics, not in totality that's not. Uh, the only thing that we as Christians do, but it is one way, a significant way in which we try to live out this calling to be a good neighbor because politics, it shapes and informs policies that impact people. And the last time I read the Bible, God really cares about people. And for that reason, It is my hope, along with you, I share in that prayer that more Christians would get engaged in advocacy, in speaking up, um, and to urge our lawmakers and leaders uh, to lead with moral courage and to lead with empathy and compassion.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, this is a global pandemic, as you know well. You're losing lives across our country and around the world. And the impact on the need for international assistance, including food assistance, will be enormous. How are you and Brad thinking about international aid at this critical moment when famine is actually predicted and we're hearing reports of hunger doubling all over the world because of this pandemic?
1: Uh, it's uh, it's mind-boggling, to be honest with you. The numbers are staggering. Uh, the World Food Pro- Program, the United Nations, you know, you cited this already, that they're predicting that the rise of those who will suffer because of starvation will double as a result of this pandemic. Um, before we talk about moving forward, the normal um, prior to the coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic, the normal in our world is that we had about 820 million people who experienced hunger in their lives. This is before COVID-19. So now imagine that doubling. And so it's a serious crisis. And I think this means that I see this as all hands on deck. Every nation that's able to assist and help, every church, every individual, all of us should participate in something. So as I'm advocating as president-elect for Bread for the World, I'm not suggesting that we abdicate our responsibility to lawmakers, but we have to participate. We can do things within our own lives. But in addition to that, which we're called to do, we can also urge our lawmakers uh, to have an imagination that goes beyond me, myself, and I, and just America first or America only. So Bread for the World works in a coalition of other advocacy organizations. Some are faith-based, others are not. For us, the reason why we exist is because we are compelled by Jesus Christ to, as you said, Matthew 25, to live out the gospel, to advocate for those who are hungry and poor, to advocate those who experience inequality and injustice. And so we're working in a coalition, collaborating with people, thinking about what are the ways that we can urge our lawmakers. And so as it speaks to international aid, right now we're urging lawmakers to consider putting $12 billion into the next stimulus bill as part of the next phase in responding to the hunger crisis that is emerging all around the world. Just one more thing that I'll just share. Uh, It's sobering because, as you know, in New York, in Washington, other places, ventilators and access to ventilators were a huge source of conversation, and rightfully so. There are nations around this world who are not prepared for this for lots of complex reasons. There are some nations who have as few as four five or six ventilators for their entire nation. And this is the reason why some nations have gone into this extreme lockdown where they're actually physically beating people up if they're out of their homes. There's a reason why these governments are resorting to these tactics. And so uh, this is a serious issue. And I would, again, urge those who are listening to partner with Bread, to partner with Sojo, um, to join us as we try to urge our lawmakers to do the right thing.
0: You know, uh, Brett often finds, uh, sojourners often finds that when people think about poverty, they think globally and don't really think in our, think about it in our domestic context. And Brookings survey released yesterday by Brookings think tank here in town suggests the number of households with children were not eating enough because the parents can't afford to feed them amid this pandemic has risen from the 2018 level, that's from 3.1% to 17.4% just in this pandemic, that's a staggering increase in childhood hunger in the United States during this, because of this pandemic. So what does your inbreds agenda look like in the coming months and years now to respond to this crisis that's for our own kids and also now- potentially doubling around the world.
1: Well, I think you've made a great point. I think sometimes there are folks that, like you exactly articulated, that believe hunger exists over there in that distant country. And I think we need to humanize the issue of hunger. uh, And that's what Bread is trying to do. Um, Sometimes because we're a policy organization that does a lot of grass top work along with grassroots work, We work around data, do a lot of research, but I think we have to do a better job reminding the church, reminding America, reminding our lawmakers that this is impacting uh, our family. It's impacting folks in our church. It's impacting uh, so many people as you shared. And this is even prior, even prior to COVID-19, where one out of every five children in this country faced levels of food insecurity before COVID-19. And as we know, this isn't going around or going to end next week or next month. The repercussions of this health pandemic is going to be long lasting. And so I think it really is going to make sure we have to do a lot of work humanizing the issue. Stories are going to help, I think, soften people's hearts and minds towards the subject. I think this is also an opportunity for more collaboration. No one can do this alone. It requires organizations like Bread, like Sojo, like so many others. It includes churches of all stripes, of all denominations. As I shared earlier, there are some things where, gosh, it should never be a partisan issue. It should not be a politics issue. It should be about a human dignity issue in our country, which boasts itself often by leaders, as the, quote unquote, the greatest nation, the richest nation, the wealthiest nation. And yet when we see families, including children, go hungry, I mean, this is unacceptable. And so we have to develop the will to be able to do it. And I think one of the programs in which we can do this is something that you refer to, and it's, we have to advocate for an increase in SNAP benefits, especially during this current health pandemic. And so, as you know, there are some uh, conversations that we're having with lawmakers right now about increasing SNAP benefits up to 15%. Again, not that that's going to solve everything, but certainly would help place more food on the table for the very families and children that you were speaking about earlier.
0: You know, we often say um, in our circle of protection, which is bread and sojourners and so many other organizations, the NAEs involved, the NCC, that you know, uh, uh, most people who get SNAP are working. They're, they're working. They're just not making enough to feed their families. And so this is a way to get people uh, to support them. And finally, work is going to be the way out of poverty for people. But you've got to support them. In in right now, people losing their jobs and they got to feed their family. But you want to get them back to a place where they can work in ways that have living wages uh, that can feed their family.
1: Yeah, there's many ways I think we can attack hunger. And you've talked about several of them. And it's not just SNAP benefits. I think we have to really advocate for an increase in livable, uh, sustainable wages. You know, here in Washington, I'll just be be very honest. Uh, years ago, when conversations about minimum wage being increased to $15, I I was actually against it. I I just didn't think that was feasible. And I think part of the reason why I was not supportive of that was because through my lens, growing up as a child of a small business owner, my parents ran a grocery store in San Francisco. And I was reading one side of that conversation that small businesses wouldn't make it uh, if we increased uh, the minimum wage to fifteen dollars. And I think part of it, again, is because we need to kind of learn and receive the f- bigger, fuller story. And that means that for some, there has to be things that we'll have to let go in order for others to be able to kind of rise in sustainability, in livable wages as well. The other thing that I want to share that I think is so important is when you mention SNAP benefits and those who are beneficiaries, uh, these are Americans, hardworking Americans who have jobs and work really hard. But it saddens me, it grieves me that sometimes what we end up doing is we take a very small, minute sliver of those who might take advantage of a system, but those who research SNAP know that it is very, very reliable. Uh, It's incredibly effective. And yet some choose to only capture the story of just that small percentage and then Make that the majority of the narrative. It's like me talking about the great recession that happened as a result of the housing crash and me focusing on bankers and now looking at all bankers all around the world, all around the country and demonizing all bankers as a result of some who were incredibly greedy and corrupt. And that wouldn't be fair to all bankers. And I think in that same way, I find it to be incredibly unfair, undignifying, unjust to be able to have a sweeping generalization over these hardworking folks that are receiving SNAP benefits that are doing their part to contribute to the American fabric of society, I had a
0: pastor once when I explained to him that most of the people in SNAP were working uh, or at least one job, sometimes more. He said, "You've got to get that out." So now you're coming to a job where you can help get that out. My final question is about calling and yours in particular, because I, I. Uh, when I heard that you had been chosen for this this new roll of bread, uh, I was I was a bit so so surprised because I thought of you as a pastor. You were a pastor. Quest a church that has really been a, a, a very uh, uh, a church that has showed that prophetic and pastoral can go together. You you've so you've been you've been kind of an innovative and I think very creative pastoral leader and uh, not from politics and. Capitol Hill and the World Bank and all that policy stuff, and here you are uh, coming to lead Bread for the World. What? What? How were you called to that? What was your sense? you you know, and care about calling a great deal. So explain to us how you uh, came from being a pastor, and maybe always expecting to to, to be, even though you moved on from Quest Church, and you left to a very thriving place with a wonderful new leader, a woman of color who's now the the, the pastor there. But, but what made you, what was the calling you felt to go from that pastoral location to your new job at Bread for the World?
1: Well, it doesn't surprise me that you were surprised because I'm surprised. Um, it's not quite what I imagined, to be honest with you. Uh, we stepped down, my wife and I, from Quest Church about 14, 15 months ago, but we had no idea what the next chapter would look like. We just wanted to be faithful and obedient, even though it was the most difficult, heartbreaking decision. We love this church. It's an amazing church. We're so glad that it's still thriving. It's probably not the best or healthiest analogy, but since we planted Quest Church, it felt like a baby to us. And so it felt like we needed to relinquish this baby. But we also just trusted that God had something in store. We just didn't quite know what it was. But here's the question that we were asking ourselves, both of us. My wife just turned 50, and I'm turning 50 in a few months. And only God knows the number of our years left. But I think in our imagination, we thought that we had maybe 15 robust, 20 robust years left. Um, And we asked the question, God, how would you want us to steward those years? And we just wanted to have the biggest impact with our years left. Uh, We could have stayed and pastored and would have loved Quest Church. But I think for us, I wanted to encourage pastors and missionaries during my remaining years. And so Bread was incredibly gracious in letting me still travel to be able to do that. But we also deeply care about issues of hunger and poverty, uh, deeply. It's a very personal issue. You know, my parents were born during the time of the Korean War. My father fled North Korea when he was a young child. And so these are real stories that have impacted our family members. My father shared stories about being in a refugee camp when the war broke out, separated from his family, shared stories about needing to pull out and consume grass because to satisfy hunger pangs in his tummy. About 22 years ago, when my wife and I, we were going through a hard season of our life as we were planting a church where things didn't go quite as we had intended. Uh, Next thing you know, we were unemployed, no benefits, no job, no salary, and... To this day, I'm so grateful for the safety net of the WIC program, which is kind of the equivalent of food stamps in Washington. That program really was a safety net for us. And so we want to be able to, compelled by our faith, make an impact. And as we're doing our work, trying to reduce and eradicate hunger in our country and around the world in partnership with so many others, we especially want to inspire the church to be about the whole gospel, to be about the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus is the why of why we do everything that we do. And so we want to make much of Jesus, especially during this time. As you know, I think there is a crisis. There is a crisis where we're not quite sure what the church is about. We're not quite sure um, that there is an identity crisis about the church and the kind of Christ that we're modeling for others. And so we want to play our small part in doing this. But you're absolutely right. I'm surprised it was the last thing that we had in our imagination. It wasn't even on the list. Uh, It wasn't something that we had pursued by any means. Uh, I have not much interest in politics, per se, even though I wrote a book in politics and I ran for middle school president in seventh grade and I got crushed. Uh, And so this is new and I'm going to uh, have to depend on you and Adam and other folks in D.C., who are followers of Jesus to, to, to assist me and to kind of um, uh, counsel me as I learn. Um, but I'm really grateful that I get to join what God is doing in D.C. and beyond as we seek to um, utilize kingdom perspective on politics and law.
0: Well, your answer to that question of personal calling prompts me to, to ask you as the new president of Bread for the World, not just to, to uh, call us to deal with a hundred crisis, but to offer a prayer. Could you offer a prayer for us as people of faith and the churches, how we can respond to those who are hungry and vulnerable and becoming more so during this pandemic crisis. Would you offer that prayer as yes. present president? It would be my honor. God, we thank you.
1: Even during this time of crisis, we thank you. We begin with gratitude. Gratitude for you, your presence, your son, your Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence in our suffering, in our anxiety, in our fear. We thank you that we can bring our full selves to you. So I pray for every single person that's listening right now, every pastor, every leader, every Christian, every person on a journey discovering who you are, help us to bring our full authentic selves to you. As you meet us, God, we also pray our prayers of lament. We grieve and lament in the suffering that is going on around the world. We lament the long lines at our food pantries and food banks. We lament families, including children who are hungry as we speak. We lament so many who have lost jobs and livelihood. We lament the startling rise of hunger around the world. We lament illnesses and the thousands of people that have lost their lives. We lament that this number of suffering and deaths on black and brown friends and bodies. We lament the rise of racism among Asians and Asian Americans. And God, as we come to you and lament... We pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us, empower us, not simply to swim in our own despair, but as we come to you, to be emboldened by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, to be in solidarity with those who are hurting and suffering. And God, to be compelled by vision, not just to go back to the old normal, but God, would you give us a pastoral and prophetic imagination for what a future could look like that more deeply embodies the kingdom of God. May this be, by your grace, may this be your will for each and every single one of us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray, amen.
0: I want to thank Pastor Eugene Cho and the new president-elect of Red for the World for being with us today. Thank you for joining us, brother.
1: Thank you so much, Jim.
0: To hear more from Eugene, follow him on Twitter at Eugene Cho. C-H-O, Eugene Cho. And check out his latest book, Thou Shall Not Be a Jerk. I love that. A Christian's Guide to Engaging Politics. For news, resources, and reflections about our current public health crisis, visit sojo.net slash coronavirus. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with your friends, and family, and even enemies, as Jesus calls us, to love them too. Well, what better way to love someone than to give them a podcast that you like? We're available on iTunes, Google Play, or whatever you listen to. Your podcast, and after you listen, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. And follow me, if you'd like, on Twitter, at Jim Wallace. This is Jim Wallace, with the soul of the nation. God bless you.